0: We're in our Advent series called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, after the hymn that we just sung, written by Charles Wesley. And each year we say that we, during Advent, we look backwards and forwards. We look backwards in recreating a sense of the anticipation and the longing of ancient Israel for the coming or Advent of the Messiah for the first time. But as New Testament Christians, we also look forward with even greater longing and anticipation, or at least we should, for the coming again of Jesus the Messiah on the last day. So each of these four Sundays of Advent, we're looking at an Old Testament promise or hint of the coming Messiah. Uh, And last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 49, This morning, we turn to the end of the book of Ruth. One of the things that we would say is common about every Christmas season is the presence of story. I think of a story that we read many times and then watched the movie with our kids, The Polar Express. Think of Ralphie dreaming about his Red Ryder BB gun and having that dream fulfilled, I I think of timeless, classic Christmas movies like Elf. Or if Jimmy Stewart is more your speed than Will Ferrell, you might choose It's a Wonderful Life. But of course, that little nativity set that sits underneath many Christmas trees represents the heart of the truest of all Christmas stories. And, And what we're doing is... We're looking back to the long ago, earlier chapters of the story that culminates in a stable in Bethlehem. So, this morning's sermon might feel more like biblical story time, but I would say that fits the Christmas season. If you're already a follower of Jesus, let biblical story time whet your appetite To dive more fully, more regularly into God's Word as you see and trust that your life, the the very circumstances of today, fit into His story, history. And if you're not a, a believer in Jesus, my prayer is that you would sense the heart of a loving God for you as you see this plan of salvation unfolding throughout all of history. Before I read a portion of Ruth chapter 4, though, I need to lead us further back before the book begins, uh, but let me pray first. God, there is dramatic story that we delight in during this Christmas season. Guard our hearts, Lord, that we might never think that anything less than your plan of salvation that culminates in the sending of your son Jesus at Bethlehem. Guard our hearts from ever thinking that any other story is greater than that. Could capture our hearts more fully, could satisfy us better then Jesus coming and Jesus coming again. Open our eyes that we might see, ears that we might hear. Amen. We'll start with a couple of headings even before we get to the end of Ruth uh, as the book of the Bible. We'll start with this theme of biblical justice. Uh, going back to the beginning... The nation of Israel had its start when God chose Abraham to be the forefather, Genesis, first book of the Bible. His family ended up in Egypt, enslaved, but the Lord used Moses to rescue them from Pharaoh and lead them out, the book of Exodus. And the people wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, before Joshua led the people into the promised land. And then um, it's generations later during the time of Judges when Ruth, as a book, is set. And as it begins, the land is suffering from a famine. By the way, youth group, numbers one through eight, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hoping you got numbers one through eight down pat ready for next Sunday, right? You got a few more after one through eight, but there's your start, and you know what I'm talking about. But as the book of Ruth begins, the land is suffering from an intense famine. And so a family leaves Bethlehem and travels to Moab. You can take a look at this map. The red line that's faint is going around and then down on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. An interesting choice, but that's where they end up in the land of Moab. And while in Moab, tragedy strikes. The father of this family dies. The two sons marry local Moabite women, but after about 10 years, the two sons also die, leaving Naomi, the mother, with her two adult daughters-in-law, who are Moabite women. One of them leaves and goes home back to her family, but Ruth refuses to leave Naomi And it's not just sort of mother-daughter devotion. Ruth expresses her faith in the statement in chapter 1, verse 16, where you go, Naomi, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. She ties her fate to that of Naomi. And so off they go, back around the Dead Sea to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem, and they arrive just as the... Barley harvest is beginning. Wonderfully coincidental timing, or so we might think. Widows were incredibly vulnerable, especially older widows in any ancient society, but certainly including this one. Widows had to depend on the generosity of others to merely survive. But in God's wisdom, Old Testament law required landowners to leave a portion of their harvest unharvested, still standing in the field, for the poor to pick or to glean for free. Leviticus 19 verse 9 and 10 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners. I am Lord your God. It is biblical justice to not maximize profit, that's what Leviticus 19 is saying. Those who have much are expected to directly aid those who have little. Deuteronomy chapter 24 repeats this law and specifically adds a little different detail, mentioning the fatherless and the widow. You put these two passages together, overlapping, and there's that quartet of the vulnerable yet again. The four classes of the disadvantaged, on the margins, people, not just in that ancient society, but still today. This is not a secondary issue. When we, uh, if you were to open Leviticus 19 again, you'd find that Leviticus 19 covers a couple of dozen issues of justice towards one's neighbor, including mention of most of the Ten Commandments. Sixteen times in 37 verses, it's very striking when you read the chapter, to emphasize how important these things are, we read, I am the Lord, the personal name of God, Yahweh. I have spoken. This is the way. God says. So, to reject that horizontal social justice towards one's neighbor is to reject something central to the heart of God, looking out for the little guy. Back to Ruth, now in chapter two. In light of this Old Testament law and practice, Ruth volunteers to go and pick up leftover grain in the fields, and it just so happens that she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz… And Boaz just so happens to be a relative of Naomi's family. Boaz is an older single guy, and he notices the new young woman who shows up in his field and asks about her. More importantly, he sees Ruth not merely trying to survive as a poor foreign woman, but he sees Ruth acting out her faith in Naomi's God who is now Ruth's God. This is what he says in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz tells his workers, the foremen, to look out for her, protect her, drop a few extra stalks of grain for her and she goes home to Naomi with this overabundance of grain, of food, ensuring their survival for at least a little while longer. That leads us to Ruth chapter 3 a few weeks later. Naomi, the mother-in-law, decides it's time to put on her Cupid hat and send Ruth on a husband-hunting mission. So Ruth cleans up. She puts on perfume, her best clothes, Not exactly suitable for farm work, but that's the point. There's romance in the air. She goes to the barn where Boaz is sleeping after a long day's work, perhaps after a long celebration, because that's what harvest time is, especially after years of famine, this blessing that God has provided in abundance. And she, in the dark, uncovers his feet and lies down next to him. The, the scene and the language used are suggestive, romantically speaking, especially in this kind of ancient culture. He wakes up startled in the dark, and he asks, who are you? And this is what she says in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Spread the corner of your garment. That phrase literally means spread your wings over me. We had just heard that. Boaz had blessed Ruth in her faith. He had just said, I recognize, I commend you for taking refuge in the shadow of the wings of the Lord, Naomi's God, who is now your God. And Ruth, he's basically saying in her actions and her words, Boaz, I'm asking you to be a part of God's protection over me, over my family, over our future. This is the dramatic turning point of the book of Ruth. This is the heart of the the book. Boaz doesn't hesitate. His answer is pretty much, yes, I'd love to. It would be my honor. But first, there's a relative that's closer than I am. That leads us, secondly, to this idea of guardian redeemer, part of what Ruth said to him in chapter 3, verse 9. Two issues were very important to every Israelite family, and they have their roots way back in Genesis 12 when God made promises to Abram to be renamed Abraham. He didn't know anything about the true God, but God made promises to him, including descendants and land. And so, rooted in that very early promise, these things were still and uh, very important to every Israelite family: descendants to carry on the family name and preserving land given to the family. First issue: uh, descendants. If a man died without leaving any sons, his brother was to was obligated to marry his widow. And have a son to carry on the dead brother's name. It, it sounds strange to uh, modern ears, but that was called the Levirate Law up at the top of the title there. It's laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It was actually, you can imagine, against the self-interest of brother number two. Because if brother number one died and had no heirs, that means brother number two is going to inherit his chunk in addition to his own. But if he married his brother's widow and had a son to carry on that name, he would give up that new gain. And so to fulfill the Leveret Law was an incredibly sacrificial, servant-hearted thing to do. Second issue. First issue, descendant. Second issue, land. Land in Israel was distributed according to tribe and clan and family. And it was a... It was a A gift from God. It was not to be taken lightly. It was not to be um, transferred out of those units of tribe and clan and family. If someone couldn't pay off his debt and was tempted to sell his land, his last remaining asset, instead of letting that land leave the family's name, the nearest relative, the guardian redeemer, Goel in the Hebrew was uh, obligated to step in, or he had the duty, I should say, to step in and buy that land in order to retain that land in the family's name, The, the impoverished, indebted family. And that often meant paying off the debt that these poor people had gotten themselves into because land was the last thing left. Leviticus 25.25, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So sometimes they had already sold it and the kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, Goel, he had the duty to buy it back, redeem it. And in this case, it also meant fulfilling the Leveret Law, issue number one, by marrying Ruth to carry on the line of Naomi's son who had died. The closest guardian redeemer is actually another guy. Boaz knows this, but this guy declines at the beginning of chapter 4. He refuses to take the financial hit on behalf of his heirs, and so Boaz is next in line. He this guy brings shame upon his family by refusing. Boaz willingly steps in to redeem family land by spending money and to redeem the family line by marrying Ruth. That leads us at long last to the reading of God's Word. Would you stand with me if you're able as we read from Ruth chapter 4 verse 9 to the end? Listen carefully. These are God's words. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is God's word. Please be seated. That leads us lastly to the true love story. Boaz and Ruth make a beautiful love story, no question about it. And Ruth's rags to riches story adds a little zest, a little drama, makes it extra compelling but in terms of love story, we'd have to say that first, in chapter 1, there is the loving devotion of Naomi to her Lord, and then the loving devotion of Ruth, a foreign woman, to her mother-in-law without any further ties of marriage binding her, and more importantly, to her mother-in-law's God. And then, only then, do we get to this dance of courtship between a foreign woman and an older single guy. And that's plenty juicy for a little four-chapter book of the Bible. But the greatest love story, the truer love story, the reason this book is placed in Scripture is actually far more compelling and far more awe-inspiring. The truest of all love stories is the The love of a holy God, perfect in every way, for sinful people like us. The truest of all love stories doesn't make much sense because that love, as pure as it is, is entirely undeserved. It's rejected uh, at, at first, it makes no sense. Remember that the first words of this book of Ruth tells us that it happened during the time of the Judges. Judges is a pretty ugly book of the Bible, book number seven. It describes a downward spiral spiritually of the people of Israel into increasingly ugly lows of unfaithfulness to God, of giving themselves over to sin. And yet that is precisely in the midst of all that where God is at work continuing to, in dramatic fashion, unfold His plan to redeem His people. And it's hinted at through a genealogy, a family tree at the very end of the book. The genealogy lists two more generations than are alive in the happenings at the end of Ruth chapter 4, right? A little boy named Obed is born. But the book twice tells us that Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of a man whose name is the climax of the whole book, the very last word of the book, not only in the English but in the Hebrew, David. So, we know that this book of Ruth was was written uh, at least a couple of generations later, at least during and possibly after the reign of David as king. So, all the Israelites listening to this story, not only when it was written, first told, but then retold by generations after it, would have delighted all the more in seeing the Complex pieces of the puzzle fit perfectly together like a masterfully written novel. Disparate pieces, never to be predicted pieces. No matchmaker could have succeeded in finding a foreign widow from Moabite, enemies of Israel, bringing her to Bethlehem somehow, giving her devotion to the God of Israel and matching her to an older single guy. His heart was aligned because of God. God's plan started centuries earlier in choosing Abraham. Look at this family tree, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had Judah as one of his 12 sons, last week's focus from Genesis 49, who had a boy named Perez, we read that twice in Ruth chapter four, who dot, 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 ended up having a boy named Salmon, whose husband, uh, who, whose son was Boaz. And Boaz leads directly to the line of David. Jesse will be um, represented in the Scripture passage we read in two weeks, from Isaiah 11, during Lessons and Carols, and David will be the focus of next week's passage as we w- walk through these Old Testament texts, heading to Bethlehem. In the midst of national turmoil, the era of the judges, in the midst of even spiritual unfaithfulness, God shows himself still to be faithful to his promise to save because we know that David's line will lead to the Messiah. David is the one uh, ancestor who provides the reason for Joseph needing to travel to Bethlehem in the first place because he's of the line of David and is supposed to register for the census. Uh, Listen to Proverbs chapter 23 as we close. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. This is a justice issue again. For their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. The word for defender there is also translated redeemer, and there's that Hebrew word again, goel. Who looks out for the fatherless? God is the ultimate goel. He will redeem. What makes us connect to the plight of the fatherless? We would... Simply say that sin makes every one of us orphans because sin means that we reject the fatherhood of God, His authority over us, our origin in Him as the Creator. But this is why the Son, the Messiah, has come, has advented. Listen to this Christmas description. It was our word of encouragement. But when the set time had fully come, God sent the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are God's child, He has also made you an heir. The greatest love story is not Boaz and Ruth. It's not Joseph and Mary. It is our creator God himself determining to love a sinful people for himself with a nevertheless undeserved, purest of all loves. It is a weaving throughout all of the ugly chapters of world history, his secure plan to redeem to sacrificially step in to preserve his family line and to promise us a land that will never be lost, to be inherited when Jesus advents on the last day. This is the glory of Christmas. Come thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, cause us to delight in entering more and more deeply into that story. It isn't dry history, it's the path you chose to take throughout world history to make it possible for the salvation of any. And it highlights your heart of love, Father. It highlights the sacrifice of the Son. It highlights that our only hope is in his coming and Jesus is coming again. We give you praise in the name of the Messiah, the Son of David, Jesus himself. Amen.